hey, it's me. This is a pre-roll because we have done 20 episodes and this is number 20. Um, well, it's actually 21. This is 20 slash 21 because it's complicated. It's six months, basically. Yeah. I personally want to say thank you, Dr. J. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. And thank you to those people who've given us sponsorship and who have so generously become patrons. It's wonderful that people kind of like it. So thank you. We started this little project for a number of reasons, mostly our own. And that you have come and joined us on this little journey is just so inspiring and so wonderful. It just makes me smile. And every week when I get to edit one of these, (laughs) just giggle all the way through. And to know (laughs) that we get to do it again next week, just it's making me so happy. So thank you very much, Jay. Thank you, everyone who's listening. And keep coming back for more of this. Quality queer shit. Welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of the podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J, and hello, Suzanne. Hello. Three people talking. Oh, my God. Can people cope? So um, maybe we should introduce ourselves a little bit. I'm Suzanne Shiflet, SM Shiflet on most media platforms. Uh, I'm a painter, an artist, a queer, dyslexic, butch, dykey, non-binary. Yeah, I think I, I think that covers it. Man, having known you yeah. for a little while, I think I recognize the description. I could probably pick you out of a lineup with that. Yep. Because tattooing? <laughs> Been a tattooist for over 30 years now. Yes, I'm lucky enough to be a recipient of those beautiful tattoos that tear upon my body in one, two, three, four, five different places, one of which you can't see. And one day I shall tell that story on this podcast. <laughs> I, I shall look that, forward to that. We can make it a Patreon call. <laughs> Clients always say, what is the most interesting thing you've tattooed? Did I make it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, fuck yes. I'm so happy I'm that girl. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, we need to now make that story that when Patreon finally fills up and there's enough money that Josephine is doing this full time, we will record and tell that story. It's a doozy. <laughs> you'll, you'll <laughs> want to. You'll, well, let, let me take this opportunity then, dear listener. If you would like to hear a quite fabulous story, if I do say so myself, please give generously to our Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash it is complicated, all one word, to help us make fabulous queer things happen. And for you, dear listeners, to enjoy a quite fabulous story, which led to a tattoo that Suzanne has described as... I would say the most interesting. The most interesting tattoo in her 30-year career. Yes. And that should tell you something. And since I know Suzanne, I know you've done some very interesting tattoos. (laughs) Dr. J, tell us who, when, how, and why thou art. So who am I? I'm Dr. J. I gave myself the job title Habinger of Change at Thoughtworks. I also got to give myself the gender transgressive non-binary gender queer. And thanks to the New Zealand government, that's now my official gender, which is pretty amazing. I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance because branding. 
My name is Josephine Barrett. I am an independent scholar, activist, and artist. I like to make a spectacle of myself upon the stage and now by drawing queer people and putting it on the internet. I also like to think of myself as a queer without portfolio because unemployment. My main income has been tattooing, but it's actually an interesting experiment because I've wanted to be a full-time painter for a while now and have been, oh, I can't make a living as a painter. And I'm finding that, yeah, I'm figuring out ways to do it. You know, like I haven't been able to tattoo legally, but I figured out ways to get paintings out there and sell them. I think this is a queer thing as well of like when I was really down and out, some friends described as, as we are the glittery cockroaches. You think you've gotten rid of cockroaches and they turn back up. You think you've got rid of glitter from your house and three months later, there's suddenly glitter somewhere. And you're like, I haven't had glitter in my house for three months. Where the fuck did this come from? And it will have just randomly appeared. And that's what I think as queers are. We are literally glittery cockroaches running around just surviving when we shouldn't. Yeah, when you're marginalized so much that you have to find other ways to exist in the world. There's a juxtaposition or maybe it's just an intersection between being queer and also being an artist. That often those two things require one to be constantly in this hustle, constantly trying to find this way of getting by. And Jay and I, we've talked a bit about this when we've been talking about sort of recent corona-related changes that have happened to our community, especially, and that we're constantly finding that you're just trying to get by. So you're just like, okay, I'll take this little gig here or this job here or do this there. And that's the life of an artist, but it's also the life of a queer person. So when you're a queer artist those things intersect in a very unique way and that brings us on very nicely to our topic which today is art and I guess queer art as all three of us are queer artists of a different kind and Suzanne especially as a visual artist I think it's really interesting that you are finding a way to live currently off that practice especially given how difficult I know it has been for you to find an audience for your work. Yeah. So if I do a big queer painting, because of the time invested, I have to ask a pretty high price. So it's harder to find buyers for that work. But when I do smaller stuff, even if it's actually queer, I'm finding I can keep the price down. And so my stuff gets out there and, faster and to more people and also I have a theory I don't know how to prove this but if I'm doing a a little painting that's kind of sexually explicit it's easier to hide if I do a big painting that someone spends a lot of money on they're gonna be a little hesitant to put it up if they have kids or if they're self-conscious all the Edwardian and even earlier small pictures of women in the boudoir were painted quite small so they could be discreetly hung within the gentleman's space to appreciate. It's one of the reasons that I think the Yellow Book and the Aubrey Beardsley and Oscar Wilde productions of those images that were kind of quite queer in a lot of ways broke so much taboos because they were accessible they weren't something that could just be hung on a wall they were available to be picked up and carried around let's talk about what's art and what's pornography Ah, i don't know what it is but i know when i see it who said that it's from a supreme court case on obscenity 
you're looking at. Uh, Jacobellus via Ohio in 1964. Associate Justice Potter Stewart wrote that hardcore pornography is hard to define, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so does art and pornography, are they separate things or do they overlap? Can there be something that's pornographic but also have artistic merit? And what is artistic merit? And now I'm thinking of the Andrea Dworkin anti-pornography years where, for those who might not know this, there was a very strong anti-pornography movement in the United States in the 1980s, I want to say led by Andrea Dworkin, who was a feminist, who decided to work with right-wing politicians, you know, because that's always a really good move. That was part of the National Endowment thing that I was yeah. mentioning, was the Christian coalition sent these uh, red envelopes to all these congressmen, um, with some of them had images of Mapplethorpe, and some just had describing a picture. And one of the things that they described was an adult man with an erection in bed with a child, which never existed. Like, so they would put some pictures that did exist and then they would make up ones that didn't exist saying, you know, he also did this, which he didn't. It was in their minds. Well, isn't it interesting? They had to create a description of art, which they had to imagine. So therefore yes. they created it in their they own minds. Created, they created, yeah. you know, like offenses against him that didn't exist by, you know, making things up in their own filthy little minds. They decide if something's obscene and can't be sent through the post by community standards. We all know about community standards is one of those things that are coming up a lot lately with, you know, social media. And but that's the interesting thing, isn't it? You know, these laws were supposedly against pornography. That's why Andrew Dworkin and her contemporaries, Andrew Dworkin et al., if we're going to be Latin, their argument was against pornography. But the one thing that actually got policed was anything to do with being gay and anything to do with women's rights, anything yeah. to do with contraception and birth control, anything to do with abortion. And these were the only things that were policed. I remember it as a kid, as a very curious 14, 15, 16 year old seeing the piss Christ and blood Christ, because they're the ones that I remember, and seeing the Maplethorpe's imagery, which I love his photography so much, and then seeing your pictures that were contemporary to those. And all of those were communicating different ways of being. But if it's like some hidden secret and you don't see it, then it seems more taboo in like because your imagination is wilder than the reality, just like the red envelopes that they're sending notes that there's a picture of blah, 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 that, you know, we're not showing you because it's so obscene. We can't even show you this when the picture doesn't really exist. So they're making up like, let's put this idea or this thought into your head. I think that interesting juxtaposition that you've made between exposure and understanding of knowledge and acceptance you've talked about to me on occasion your theory about how to expose someone who is not necessarily comfortable about queer sexualities or subjectivities in your art or in art in general i know you have this theory and i really want to hear you share oh, it if you don't well, mind there's a book called thinking fast and slow and it's basically like you know the parts of your brain that are activated when you see something and you you make a snap judgment. And then 
the slow part is your brain taking in what you're seeing and trying to make sense of it. So if you're a painter or an artist and you just hone your skill and your craft is like perfect is not a good word for art because you know what is perfect, right? But you think of advertising or something like that, like how they're master manipulators at you wanting to look and to be pulled in by whatever image with all these kind of things that aren't quite so obvious. But, and you see this all the time, actually, in art history, like when we go into museums, art that we see that we're enthralled by has all of these qualities. And then, you know, you can look at the subject matter and you're a little bit like, what, wait a minute, what, what the hell's going on here? Like a perfect example is Venus disarming Cupid a Bronzino painting where there's all these allegories piled up. And when you first see it, you see this beautiful female body that looks like they're kissing this younger maleish figure who's Cupid or Eros, whichever, Greek or Roman. And she has her hand behind him taking the arrows out of his quiver. But you start thinking about like, what the hell is going on? This older woman is kissing this younger person who looks like he's being a little bit too forward. But Eros and Venus are mother and son. So there's, you know, this weird incestuous thing going on. And, you know, years scholars have argued, like, what is this message? You know, is the message that here's immature love and here's mature love? And what are all these different characters that are around supporting this composition? So it's just such a deep, like, thoughtful painting with so much going on but you wouldn't even consider it or you wouldn't even walk up to it or look at it if it was painted badly or if the composition wasn't so spectacular you would just walk by it so my goal in my paintings is to make these paintings that are compositionally really sound and have a certain kind of luscious quality about them but then usually the subject matter has to deal with the queerness to draw in people who can appreciate art but might not have been exposed to such a thing so that they can have some you know kind of empathy when they look at it because their appreciation of art is a thing that connects me to them and then they can start getting oh wait this person's life happens to be different than mine (laughs) well it's interesting that you're using that thing that they might be really familiar with to convey a message that they're really not, or even resistant to. And I think of the way I've tried to in the past, I'll use comedy to try and get a message across to someone who might be hostile or is resistant to hearing my message. Because my feeling is if I can make you laugh, you understand me on some level. In order to laugh, you have to accept the premise of my joke. And by accepting the premise of my joke, you accept the premise of my argument. And by doing that, I've created a bridge of understanding. And I can really see these notions of using the familiar and the unfamiliar combined together in something really interesting. And yet some would then read that as obscene because they're so challenged by it, or they might see it as really, really problematic because they are so challenged by it. And I think that's where this notion of art, pornography, and obscenity starts to overlap in a really complicated and interesting way, although also shitty way because unfortunately it means as queer artists we all have to deal with that and I know Jay certainly had to do that themselves as well is dealing with people's preconceptions of what you are doing simply because of the subject matter whereas they would of course accept that it were a heterocentrist cis normative image which can be just as explicit 
but just because it happens to be a queer couple or a queer person or a queer topic, it yeah. suddenly becomes obscene. And mm-hmm. I think that is no more obvious than the number of times that Suzanne has been put in Facebook jail. Sometimes it's because, you know, I'll have a figure and there's no bits showing, but it happens to be like an overweight or masculine woman, usually myself, because I'll use myself as a model a lot. First of all, I have to tell that I, you know, always fight it. It's like, this is a painting. You're supposed to be able to show paintings like according to community standards, art is okay. But I think because the paintings are realistic, they're taking them as photos. And then if it's a masculine woman, and God forbid a masculine woman that is substantial in size, they really freak out. If it was a naked woman with her legs spread who was traditionally feminine and passive in the woods, naked, like 90% of art is, it's fine. But if it's a naked woman on a motorcycle, (laughs) covered in tattoos, even with no nipples showing and no genitalia showing, then you get kicked off. That expression, community standards itself, (laughs) being used as the reasoning behind those judgments that are sometimes made by people, sometimes made machines. And I think there's a topic, Jay, we need to talk about how heterosexism and racism is coded into machinery. But I think in this particular instance, I really want to reference that notion because I think it's the same kind of systemization of supposed notions of what is acceptable and what is not. And as queer artists, you have to navigate that so much. There's a difference between the actively sexualized and the passively sexualized. Suzanne was talking about it of if the body is being passive and is just lying there, that's read in an entirely different way to a much more aggressive stance or a stance that's seen as much more active. Only if it's someone that is seen as female, because through our history, there has been controversy around a passive male figures. So if you had a man laying naked in the woods, passive, that would bring up issues. But if the man is standing there like naked with a bigger, and that's, you know, less likely to be flagged. Like I'm even in a couple of groups that are called queer artists. And there's lots of dick (laughs) in those. They don't get flagged or they don't get kicked off. They stay up. You can go look at them. I one time in the comments put a painting of a nude torso of a female holding her breasts with a black dildo over black pants. I got flagged and I got kicked off Facebook for a week. And it was in the comments, even though I would say 90% of the images that are put on the queer art groups are guys with erections. I was thinking of the Jeff Coombs, and I can't pronounce the name of the woman correctly, that he did basically naked and spread eagle in the sculpture. But if he had done a man in the same receptive position, that would have been tagged as obscene because it's so queer So something erect and ready to take something is allowed. It's cock as power. It's like a power thing. Because I'm thinking now about the Tom of Finland images, which are men with giant cocks and very, very strong poses, and yet clearly also queer. And so many of those images are queer by their 
symbology, their presentation. We see them and we're very aware that it is a very strong, like we've just said, a strong, presumably cis male figure with a giant cock that isn't necessarily even exposed per se in a strong position. And yet we know that the presumed gaze is queer. So what is it about those images or any image, in fact, that require, now I'm getting into this gaze and gaze stuff because we were going to do that. We, we were having fun with words, dear listener, that the gaze and the gaze sounds the same. How is it that we can see these codes in these images and know that actually the person that's presumed to be the audience isn't straight? I do some work with the Tom of Finland Foundation and, you know, I've talked to uh, one of the directors about the male and female gaze their products, they have more sales to women than they have to men. So women like Tom of Finland images as well. But it's because I think the gay label or whatever is put on it and the obscene label is put on it. It seems like the heterosexual art world has a problem with, they're just super homophobic, right? Like I remember having... Uh, show in Las Vegas, a few times men came in and they would look at the painting of the naked guy with a huge dick and they would look away and be like, I can't look at that. And I was always like, why can't you look at that? It's like, I don't want to look at some guy's junk. They had such an issue with it. But you have one of those. <laughs> What's the problem? And I have come across this problem Many, many times, like having paintings in my tattoo studio where straight guys are just like, I don't want to see dick on the wall. Can you take that down? I once had a show in Oregon at the university. A friend of mine put it on the show. One of his thesis works was to be a curator for a show of artists in Portland that were edgy. The leader of the Church of Satan had some satanic stuff. A friend who was a porn star had a bunch of porn things. Someone else had this like fetus anti-abortion stuff going on. And I had four small eight by 10 paintings of dicks, of penises. And the doors were closed before the show even opened up because they were complaints. And the complaints weren't about anything. They weren't about the violence. They weren't about the blow-up doll that had stuff coming out of her. They were about the penises. They were just about the four little paintings of dicks, the smallest pieces in the show. And to have like nude life drawings taped to the wall all along the hallways, but because these paintings were realistically rendered and very detailed, someone complained about it. And then there was a back and forth about should we keep the doors locked? Should we keep them open? I pay for tuition. And ultimately it came down to the dean or whoever makes the final decision was worried about funding being cut to the arts program because of the controversy of showing penises. And just like there's so many levels to this, they're censoring part of the human body that half the population has that actually gives a penis more power because it's being so taboo to show that. But isn't that the rhetorical act? I mean, weirdly enough, you come to a place in this podcast that Jay and I often get to, which is, oh my God, there's 
1200 layers to this, this one thing we could deconstruct and come to the point where the simple truth is, yes, this is incredibly complicated. But in a really simple sense, I think you've hit upon the issue. Rhetorically, you did the one thing that is actually the most challenging. You were showing the penis for what it is, rather than as a symbol or a narrative of power. You were saying, no, here it literally is. And thus, it is taken out of its context of power. It is delegitimized in some regards in terms of its mystique. And you have this literal thing. And of course, therefore, it is the most challenging, therefore the most obscene and the one that they're most concerned about. And of course, they start worrying about how it is seen to be, not what it actually is. The symbology of it becomes more powerful than the object. Ultimately, though, it comes down to fucking money. It comes down to class. We're not going to get money if someone complains about this. Like the whole National Endowment for the Arts thing of the red envelope. The repercussions of that whole incident was that museums or anyone who wants to get funding from a government source for the arts is going to censor because if they don't, the government will. Porn even goes back to that because there wasn't such a thing as pornography until postcards started being made. Once porn could be distributed to people of lower class, it became porn. Because before it was just dirty drawings and only rich people could have them because who could afford expensive etchings or who could afford these big Mm. books. But then once the printing press started churning stuff out that lower class people could afford and then especially once photography became widespread and available to the masses nude pictures became pornography and they became bad and demonized to the point where you know the government had to step in and say you can't use the post office to send these obscene images it's against the law you're breaking the law by doing that So it's interesting, it's not breaking the law to create the image, it is breaking the law to disseminate the image. So it is the communication of the image, not the image itself, which to me, being neuroatypical, or maybe just a person, sees as completely (laughs) counterintuitive, because it makes no sense to me. It's like, well, surely it's the image itself that's the problem, disseminating it is surely just the secondary act. But actually, the problem isn't the image. The problem is the message it conveys, and if that message reaches the wrong people. It's a class thing. One is seen as high art and erotica and the sort of thing that's sold in art fairs and that, and the other one is seen as not art and is sold under the table at a newsstand. How do we reconcile those differences, especially when queer images are not put into the high art but are put down into the filthy under-the-table pieces unless they're presented in a particular way? economics the postcard you have from the met is of a painting that's worth a million dollars or whatever the playboy image you bought at the newsstand so it's no more complicated and no less complicated than that the same image can mean a different thing depending on where it is who it's for who bought it for how much in what context and the notion that class definitely is a big factor goes right along with being queer because queer and class, those two issues very often go together. And then we can add in any notions of sexuality and over-sexuality of many communities, including our own, but what I could think of here is how intersections with race, 
and class and queerness, the more common those intersections are, the more likely the image is going to be seen as obscene. I wonder if there's some way to quantify this almost. It just seems (laughs) like these things are very, very obvious and yet extremely complicated. And so I think the resistance to that is producing our own art from our own position. Unfortunately, that means often producing it with next to no money, with next to no training, often in our own specific places. And these are the places where it's not going to be seen by anyone outside of ourselves and yet might be really important to ourselves. And yet the people who really want to educate with these images won't ever be able to see them. And if they do, they'll think they're obscene because they're low art by queers who are different. And poor. In a number of ways. And poor, especially poor. If you look at like David Hockney's paintings, he sells for a lot of money. Now Mapplethorpe, but his stuff didn't start showing in galleries or being shown a lot until he hooked up with this rich guy, Wagstaff, like Leonardo da Vinci and his work. Even in his time, he was pretty famous, um, which was a total class thing, where women, we always talk about like they're not, can you name any women artists before the 20th century? They were out there, but they were either in convents or they were from rich families. I don't know of any artists that were like Caravaggio, where he was kind of a rogue and kind of an outcast, but he also had the privilege of being male. They're even finding now that a lot of art that was attributed to men actually were done by women, but you would have to put a male name on it to get it sold or to get it accepted. Oh no, I was thinking of J.K. Rowling's publishing under a gender neutral name and a male name to get published. I'm just like, you're just repeating the problem. I was going to make a point about Frida Kahlo, but this is much funnier. Yeah, Frida Kahlo wasn't even like in her time, wasn't all that popular. There's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful, it's really fucked up, news clipping of Frida Kahlo that's often mentioned in this discussion. The headline is, Wife of the Master Mural Painter Gleefully Dabbles in Works of Art. Yep. This is from 1933. <laughs> and this is a, yeah, it's so on point. Artemisia Gentileschi, who's one of the best Renaissance painters. Her dad was a painter, and so oftentimes things that she had done were attributed to her father. Because she possibly, you know, her vagina would get in the way. It always does in your painting. I find that to be the case now that I've got one. I just, yeah, it, it really... Isn't it hard to do a yeah. lot of things? That's why I've not been recognized in my time. <laughs> yes. This great artist. It's not because I'm crap. It's not because of... <laughs> As a photographer, I struggle with my weekly hands to try and hold up such a large thing as a camera. It's such a phallic object. I really struggle to have it protruding in front of me. Yes. It gets, it's so, so distracting. When you step out of the binary norms of being a creator, people really get like bent out of shape about it. Art is supposed to put you on edge. It's supposed to challenge your very notions. It's supposed to represent some sort of like struggle or even dissonance. And that's supposedly the mark of art as opposed to just an image. I've heard it described that way. You know, that's not art because it doesn't do this. And yet when queers are creators, that is so challenging that it goes beyond that into something that is obscene. So the difference between something that is art, not art, and obscene... It doesn't look good over your couch. Uh, well, it depends on whose couch it is. And if it's my couch, oh, yes, yes it does. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm lucky enough to listen to have a couple of Cezanne's yeah. paintings, and we don't have them over the couch. Sorry, one of them's in the bedroom. <laughs> so we're probably going to have to do this at some point again and pick apart some of these issues. I really would love to talk about queer art and queer artists in the sense of how do we navigate these things? Because we've mentioned a lot of the issues here. We've talked a lot about the problems, but yet there are obviously spaces that we can create and what, what use is that space? How can we create a challenging and productive artistic environment, community space, opportunity between us and do that for each other? Because I often find that queer art is directed at other queer people in order to communicate our experience when it's not being represented anywhere else or it's to communicate things that just aren't being recorded. I always think of art, especially performance art, because that's been my background, as a form of oral history, as a way of describing our experience when it's just not being discussed anywhere else. And of course, there are also wonderful um, discussions of how queer art has been coded into mainstream arts. So, so it sort of, it wheedles its way in and there are references to it without being overt and wonderful sort of notions of like um, metaphor and symbolism. I'd love to talk about that at some point because I know Suzanne has a wonderful background in art history and knows a lot about these things. And I know for um, Jay's case that art and speaking to a queer community and representing a queer community is a huge part of of your photographic background because you spend a great deal of time trying to document and capture these moments. Jay's art, often it is about capturing performance in the moment. And it's not just about recording it, it's also about capturing the feel of it, the unique quality of a queer artist performing on a stage because it is just very different when it's in this environment that is very, very queer focused. And I think these are all such interesting topics. As we're making art, are we just preaching to the choir when we're making queer art? Or do we want to go outside of the, our safety bubble into the rest of the world where we're more vulnerable? Yeah, Jay and I have talked a little bit about this notion of vulnerability yes. as being incredibly powerful and being also something that can really draw people in and, and create a sense of commune. And I think about that communication, that sort of universal language that Jay discussed just now. And I know that, Suzanne, you've talked about going into museums and seeing paintings from hundreds of years ago, and yet you can still relate to some of it. And of course, as the audience, you change the meaning and you bring your own identity to that and your own subjectivity to it. But that dissonance is not a point of discomfort for you unless it is a point of discomfort and you're really happy to lean into it. And I think that is so fascinating and I really want to keep talking forever and ever. But if we don't stop at some point, we're just going to keep doing this. And that's not a problem, but I really need to pee. <laughs> for me personally, it's been an absolute joy having you with us, Suzanne. Thank you so much for being our first yeah. guest um, next time. Would you like to talk about J.K. Rowling? Uh, no, because I can proudly say that I've never read any of her books. Jay, do you want to talk about J.K. Rowling next week? It's yet another fucking week in 2020, and yet again, J.K. fucking Rowling has decided to come for the fucking trend, because there's nothing else going on in the fucking world, is there? But she's rich. She can do that. There you go. Class and art, everyone. And with that, I'm going to just <laughs> stop. And thank you very much for listening, everyone. This was a real pleasure. I can't wait to have you here again in our queer little artistic bubble. 
So join us, will you, next week for a conversation that will very likely not start with J.K. Rowling, but very well likely will end with it. Cue Pinky Pocky ukulele sounds. Maybe you could give us a little plug of where people can find your stuff. You can find my work on the web at smshifflett.com. 